Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Chase Cannon, and I'm here with Suzanne Spradley. We are both attorneys with NFP's Benefits Compliance team, and we're here on this podcast to break down some benefits compliance issues and to track some of the GOP's ACA repeal and replace efforts. And let's start there, Suzanne. Tell us about last week. We heard more uh, about something going through or potentially going through with the Senate. Uh, Tell us what happened there. So back on the 26th, the Republican Senate leadership announced that they would no longer hold a vote on the Graham-Cassidy bill, which was their last attempt to repeal and amend the ACA under the 2017 budget resolution. They had until September 30th to try to pass something. And once we heard from Senator Collins that she would not support the legislation, and we already had heard from Senators Paula McCain that they were opposed to it, it was clear that they did not have the 50 votes to pass through the budget resolution process or the reconciliation process. So there is some discussion of trying to address health reform again in the 2018 budget resolution, but likely that's going to be devoted solely to to changes in the tax code. That doesn't mean that efforts are dead because the ACA remains actuarially and structurally flawed. So I think we will continue to see efforts, um, certainly in the background. We'll talk about a few of those efforts today, um, but don't expect it to go away entirely. Right. And we've heard arguments on both sides of including health care in the tax reform debate. And that's mm-hmm. what you're talking about going forward. Um, but we think that that's probably... Most senators think that's not the best way to do it. They just want to focus on tax reform. I think so. Okay. So um, I also understand, though, that towards the end of the week there, President Trump told reporters at the White House that he was working on an executive order that he wanted to sign soon, and that related to individuals buying health insurance across state lines. I know we've covered that briefly on previous podcasts, but what is the theory behind this move from President Trump? Let's start with some background. And first of all, this, all, this also applies to his desire to allow for those association health plans to form. Um, but at, in terms of the background, the ACA already allows states to enter into compacts um, that would allow the sale of individual health insurance across state lines. So again, we're talking about individual health insurance and not employer-sponsored coverage. But what we found is that there were few insurers who showed an interest. Part of the reason is because the way the regulatory framework applies today, um, each state still has governance over the products that are offered in their state. And so for a carrier to come in and offer a product in all the various states can be very costly, very cumbersome for them to try to meet and adhere to the various state rules. Um, But if we look to the ACA, what did it allow? Well, it allowed states to join interstate insurance compacts. And what we found were only three states took this up after the ACA. A couple of them did take it up prior to the ACA, but after the ACA, we saw Georgia, Kentucky, and Maine. Um, They passed laws that authorized such compacts, Um, but so far, again, nothing has happened, even with the passage of those laws. So uh, one example is Maine passed a law that said, beginning in 2014, carriers that were licensed in Maine could also offer plans that were approved for sale in Connecticut, in Massachusetts, in New Hampshire, Rhode Island, But again, no carriers uh, agreed to do so. We also saw another 16 other states that at least introduced legislation to allow selling across state lines, but that legislation was was either defeated or it was passed and then vetoed by the governor in that state. So none have been successful so far. 
Right. You mentioned some reasons there for it not being successful, including the, the cumbersome nature of being able to sell across state lines. But the ACA authorized those sales. States have shown at least some interest in that. Why, why hasn't it been more successful? Well, part of the reason has been because of the, the range of the key stakeholders that have spoken up and voiced their opposition to it. So some of those include the state insurance officials themselves who really have an interest in governing what happens in their state. The NAIC, which is the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. You've had health insurance policy experts and the American Academy of Actuaries and others all outlining some concerns they have with this approach. Um, One of the main concerns you will hear is that the unlikeliness and the high cost of a carrier coming into a state and creating a provider network. So if you think of it, a carrier has to find enough providers and hospitals that they then enter into a contract with in a state um, where they don't have currently existing relationships. And they're then competing with those carriers that have already been in that state, already been able to uh, enter into contracts because they have enough enrollees in that state. Obviously, when you're contracting with a hospital or provider, you're going to get better rates if you can show that you have a number of enrollees in that state. If you're new into that state, you don't have enrollees yet, so it's going to be difficult to compete for good network contract pricing if you don't have the background for that. So also, if you think about it, the ACA currently sets minimum plans um, that can be offered with certain mandated benefits. So that is, there's this minimum threshold of plan that can be offered. And because of that minimum threshold, it limits the ability of states or carriers to create differences and exploit those differences in insurance products and, and thereby compete and, and, and reduce the cost overall. So uh, lastly, as we kind of mentioned this, but that compact that it was the compact requirements under the ACA requires HHS approval, and it's been very burdensome for the states and the carriers to try to work through. So those are just some of the, you know, some of the hurdles right now that we've seen. Right. And those all make sense, definitely. Let's take one step back, though. You mentioned the NAIC, or the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, as a key stakeholder that has spoken up against this. Um, tell us, Professor Spradley, let's go on a history lesson here. Tell us a little bit about the NAIC and why, why they matter. This is really an interesting organization. And, it, and you have to understand, too, when you hear of stakeholders, you want to know what's the political background of them and why are they taking a certain position. So the NAIC, it's actually a voluntary organization of the U.S. Um, state insurance commissioners. It was formed in 1871, and so it's the nation's oldest association of state officials. But it came um, largely out of, well, I guess it was formed prior to the McCarran-Ferguson Act, but it really got its legs after the McCarran-Ferguson Act in 1945, which gave the states the power to regulate insurance, um, and it exempted that industry from really federal regulation. So that's why we have the various state insurance commissioners that have governance over the carriers versus some federal scheme. But the exemption only applies if a state does enact a regulation otherwise, the federal government can step in and regulate the carriers. So because of the exemption from federal regulation, one of their primary roles has been to, to the NAIC's primary role has been to help develop um, some standardization of state insurance regulations because that's the biggest reason why the feds would come in is to try to standardize the regulations across the nation. Um, as we mentioned earlier, it's difficult for a, steroid, a carrier to have to abide by all the various state rules. So if there's a federal scheme, it does make it simpler, both for 
carriers and, frankly, for our constituents, the employers, to abide by um, a standardization. So much of the NAIC's efforts are directed at formulating policy. They have these model rules that they, uh, that they provide that states can either adopt or they can adopt portions of it and change. There's no requirement that they adopt them, but they try to come up in working with state officials for a model regulatory scheme. One of the, from a political standpoint, though, when, when you do hear them speaking up against the selling across state lines, you, you have to understand where they're coming from. Um, they have another ongoing battle right now because there is a, a, an attempt to have this federal scheme under the National Insurance Act of 2006, and that was to create a federal insurance regulatory office within the Department of Treasury, and it would allow insurers, it would give them the option to be regulated by the state or to opt for a single national regulatory scheme, and we primarily see this in terms of licensure. So um, for us, it's important for, uh, for example, for insurance agents and brokers to have a federal place to go. Um, to enter into licensing, but that just gives you an idea of where the NAIC is coming from. They are really opposed to anything federal, and they want it to occur at the state level. So if we look at, in the context of selling across state lines, selling insurance products across state lines, the NAIC is concerned that anything that limits the state's ability to govern the carriers can potentially weaken, for example, consumer protection laws that are currently in place. So each state has their own mandated benefits. Each state takes a, an interest in the laws that protect their consumers. Um, now, we haven't seen what exactly is in Trump's proposal, but what we have heard is that it would allow a carrier to comply with the mandates of their home state and yet offer products in other states, which raises a host of issues that we'll talk about later. Advocates argue that selling across state lines would provide more choices for consumer, would reduce costs by increasing composition, competition. Opponents, um, like the NAIC, are concerned with those consumer protection laws being uh, minimized and the disruption of risk pools. Right. So thank you for that background on the NAIC. And it does help understand why they may be opposed to something like selling across state lines. Um, explain further what you mean, though, about this disruption of risk pools. I know we focused on risk pools and uh, some of those discussions in the individual market, but uh, what does that mean? How, how would risk pools be disrupted? Yeah, and this is really, it, it's something to keep in mind. I don't know if the theory uh, really would equate to reality, but for example, let's say that Texas, Texas rewrote its laws and allowed this low-cost option product to be sold that had few mandated benefits. It was a bare-bones plan, one that is significantly cheaper than other plans. And then let's assume that other states did not follow. They felt strongly about their mandated benefits. They wanted to keep these requirements. So products in those, those states had, you know, were, were significantly richer plans in terms of coverage. Now you have a young, healthy adult that must buy coverage because, remember, the individual mandate is still in play, right. um, but they don't want to spend so much money, and they want to be able to shop and look for cheaper alternatives, and they gravitate towards these bare-bone plans. So you have these young, healthy adults that leave the risk pools in their respective states, and they go to the state that has the cheaper, less costly plan, and what you have remaining in those states, uh, if you can imagine the out-of-state insurers being able to lure the healthy employee enrollees away from existing risk pools, and then the pools that remain in those other states are progressively sicker 
and then they then become more expensive and then they ultimately fail. So that's the idea is you're drawing out healthy individuals into these cheap plans. You're leaving the sicker individuals in the richer plans. Those prices go up. They eventually just skyrocket to a point that people can't afford them any longer and they fail. Now, I don't, uh, my questioning of this whole process is I don't think people necessarily go for the cheapest alternative. There's right. many people that are healthy that still want a richer product and don't want the bare bone plan. Right. So you will certainly attract some but I don't know how significant the number of people would be that would actually leave the plans in their state and want to buy that, that bare bones plan. Right. Even if I'm healthy, I may be interested in protecting against that risk, that chance that I get sick. I want to have at least the peace of mind that I have a plan that covers uh, more than a bare bones plan would. Right. Uh, right. But certainly you can see the, uh, where, where that argument that it might disrupt risk pools could potentially come from. Sure. So in quick fashion, tell me the arguments for and against selling across state lines. Okay, so so those in opposition, as I mentioned, argue that, of course, it's not practical due to the network issues that we mentioned, and they question whether this competition would really lower premium costs. So, for example, the mandated benefits, this is one thing that we just discussed that would be a one way to lower costs is if you strip out the mandated benefits, you have a lower, you have less coverage available. That certainly will affect insurance premium some, but there's other things to take a look at. And one of those is the real uh, cost uh, driver of, of uh, insurance premiums is the cost of care. So, and the cost of care is inherently local. So prices vary in real estate, for example. So that where the hospital resides, where the providers, the doctor's offices are, the, the, what costs that they incur, they've got to then uh, seek through uh, their cost and, and recovery through their cost. So real estate does come into play, the cost of real estate. You also have, for example, if you look in some areas of the country, they're going to have some providers that have more education and therefore are going to want to have higher prices for their care. Um, just provider supply and market demands alone will factor into what the cost of health care delivery is. So there's a lot of things that drive the cost of health care, not just mandated benefits. That's only one small portion of what could drive the ultimate cost of the premium rates. And so um, really it is local. So, so if you have a New York um, uh, person who resides in New York and they want to buy an Oklahoma plan, they still have to account for the cost of health care in New York, which is inherently going to be more expensive than providing health care in Oklahoma. So as you can see, it still could have some effect, but there's many other cost drivers to the premium cost. If we look at proponents, they just generally favor deregulation that would allow the carriers to offer a wider variety of products, namely those cheaper alternative products. Um, and they say the reason it hasn't been successful right now is because of those minimum requirements of the ACA. If they could repeal those minimum requirements, allow there to be more competition on the types of products that were offered, um, give consumers more options. So instead of also being limited to plans that were sold in their states, they could be interested in other mandated benefits. For example, another state may offer, may mandate coverage for fertility treatments or acupuncture or something else that, that is of their interest. They could find and seek a product in a state um, for which those mandated benefits were provided. So it just provides more options, theoretically. Um, it would also do so at a lower cost. Um, those that are happy with the plan they have in their own state of residence could keep that plan. That's the idea behind it. They also assert that selling um, across state lines would allow carriers to create national and regional markets, which is really 
when we get back to the idea of risk pool, yes, you may be drawing them out in these area uh, from uh, these individual states, but now you're creating a larger risk pool nationally, which should spread the risk more and ultimately bring costs down. So a- another idea as to how that could drive the premium cost down. But to be successful, there has to eliminate the requirement of creating these insurance compacts that's under the ACA, which is really a barrier that has prevented the states and the carriers from moving forward on that. Okay, so aside from what you've already mentioned, what would make this difficult to implement? Well, not only is it difficult from, as I've mentioned, the provider networks, but really if you just think of it in terms of the regulatory oversight and determining which state laws would govern, and and how those risk pools would stabilize. So states are generally going to be very protective of their oversight capability. So think of, for example, a state allowing an insurer that's governed by a different state's regulators coming into your state, offering products to the consumers in your state. And then so what happens when a problem arises? Who has the final say or what actions are taken to resolve the issue? Or what, what actions should be taken against the carrier, for example? What about when a consumer has a problem? Do they take their complaint to their resident state? Do they take their complaint to uh, a different state that they don't reside in? And will that state be concerned about a consumer who's not even living in their state, residing in their state? So there's definitely some things to work through in terms of state oversight and governance and which rules would apply to the carriers. Um, But with all of this discussion that we've talked about today, remember, what we're really talking about is the individual market. And so with most of our constituents being large companies, mid-sized companies, even small companies that are either, uh, for example, if they're self-insured, then this doesn't apply to them at all. But if they are uh, even fully insured in the large group market, again, this wouldn't apply. Right. So um, let's switch gears. That was a great recap on the pros and cons and the difficulties perhaps to implement this idea of selling across state lines. Uh, But let's talk a little bit about bipartisan efforts for market stabilization. We saw this discussion in the Senate Help Committee before the Graham-Cassidy took off. And uh, will we see a revisit back to that and what will it look like? Well, we will. They, you know, we had Lamar Alexander, the chairman of the committee, and Patty Murray, who's a Democrat, and Lamar Alexander being a Republican, were working on a bill prior to uh, them trying to reinvigorate the graham Cassidy bill, the, the repeal efforts, and leadership in the, in the GOP made them uh, turn their attention back to the graham Cassidy bill, and so this was tabled. Um, but this is a bipartisan effort that's aimed at sp- stabilizing that individual market, which is there has to be something done, and both sides agree to that. It's just how will they do it. So we have heard that a bill could drop any time now and would likely include two years of funding for those cost-sharing subsidies for the carriers that you've heard so much in the news about and really something that was causing some carriers to talk about drawing out of the marketplace because they, they didn't have assurances of those cost-sharing subsidies continuing to be paid. And there's also, as the GOP is pushing for, an expansion of state waivers, which would give more flexibility um, to the states. And so um, finally, there's this idea of these copper plans that could be sold to people. Right now, they're they're less generous plans are only offered to people that are under age 30, but expanding who could potentially purchase those plans. So right now, what we're seeing are these two senators are back at it, you know, very aggressively working to come up with some bipartisan effort, Um, and uh, they're already hearing some pushback from conservatives saying that this is going to be a bailout for the insurance companies, 
Um, and so it's not clear even if it gets through the Senate if it would pass in the House. But I think that you will see some efforts to make something happen. Now, when they talk about these state waivers, this is where you could get some pushback. Um, you do see that, again, it's this idea that we want to give some more uh, control to the states, give them more flexibility in how they want to meet the goals of the ACA, which are expanding access, of course, and providing affordable health care. Um, and we've discussed waivers on the on prior podcasts, and we will certainly discuss them on future co- podcasts. Um, and it's really premature to state what, uh, how much flexibility this new bill would grant with these waiver systems. Um, but what we'll see is that the Republicans will try to push for more flexibility. The de- Democrats will push back, saying that they don't want to undermine the guardrails that are currently put up in the in the waiver system right now, um, which means you know they can't reduce the number number of people who are res- who have access to health coverage. They can't make insurance um, less comprehensive or less affordable, or they or increase the deficit. So you can see now where there's going to be tension in trying to decide how much flexibility they want to allow for the states. With those guardrails in place, you can see there's not a lot of flexibility if you're saying that they can't um, make insurance less comprehensive because that's the idea is to have more options. So we will certainly report more on this after the bill is released. Um, the challenge in drafting is that it'll have to provide enough flexibility for the Republicans with this waiver system so that they can call it a win, but not so much that the Democrats can't live with it. Again, they want those guardrails. So with all of it, I think the lesson learned so far is to keep the bill simple and try to prevent others, whether it's in the Senate or in the House, from attaching pieces of the ACA um, repeal and just derailing the process entirely. So a small bill definitely has a chance of passing more so than a larger bill, as we've seen. Right. So I think maybe that's the theme we'll see, like you're saying, going forward, uh, these smaller piecemeal attempts to make adjustments to the ACA and potentially, hopefully... Uh, Republicans and Democrats in the Senate and the House starting to come to some kind of agreement on something uh, to try and uh, stabilize the individual market and make these piecemeal changes to hopefully get a better system in place. Uh, should be interesting to watch over the next few weeks, months, years. Definitely. Who knows how long it will all take. Definitely. And as we've said on prior podcasts and continue to say, the employer-sponsored market is a strong, stable market, and it will continue to be so regardless of what's happening over here. However, it's still important for employers that the entire ecosystem of um, healthcare payment is stabilized. So we, we do, it's helpful for employers to have a strong, stable individual market as well. And that's why we continue to address this on podcasts. Right. Well, thanks again, Suzanne, for uh, sharing all that with us. As always, we appreciate it. And as we like to say, that's That's a wrap. wrap. We'll talk to you guys next time.